Um, but I had a moment while I was home and I stopped and I asked myself, I was like, okay, it's gone. It's, all, it's gone. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't change that. Now, what do you want? What do you want to do? Do you want this PhD or do you not want this PhD? Welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my good friend, Dr. Shaquinta Richardson. Shaquinta is a badass of a human being. She's currently a licensed marriage and family therapist practicing out of the state of Texas, and previously she was faculty and clinic director at a master's level therapy program. Shaquinta is also a sought-after life coach who works with high-achieving black women to develop balance and boundaries, as well as craft routines and mindsets around self-care. Today's episode is pure gold. Shaquinta and I start off talking about how she grew up in poverty and saw education as the way out of bad circumstances. She discusses the trials she faced in getting through grad school and becoming a faculty member, including financial uncertainty and racial discrimination. We chat about why she chose early on to not pursue a career in research and why she decided to start a business around bringing self-care practices to other black women. Quick note, today's episode does have some swearing in it, including F-bombs. If you've got kids, co-workers, or others around, and you don't want them to hear that kind of speech, I suggest you find some headphones. Anyway, I'm so excited to be able to bring you my conversation with Shaquinta today. Be sure to stick around to the very end of the episode to hear Shaquinta's responses to our bonus questions. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, well, let's get started. Thank you so much, Shaquinta, for joining me today. I am pleased to be able to introduce to all the listeners Dr. Shaquinta Richardson from Beyond Achieving. Shaquinta is a life coach for black women working on issues such as balance, boundaries, self-care, mindset, and confidence. And I'm happy to say that we were um, cohort mates in our PhD program friends and colleagues, and so it's good to get to talk to you again. So uh, is there anything that I missed in terms of your introduction or how you present yourself now? Um, no, that's that's pretty much it. I work primarily with black women, but not solely black women, um, and specifically in like you know high-pressure jobs, women who may have been formerly uh, identified as like gifted when they were in school um, and like, you know, high achieving now in high pressure roles. So that is my general focus. Very cool. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So if we can, can we start in grad school? Mm -hmm. um, so I know you, you went to a master's program. Is, is that right? Before the PhD. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I did too. And then we met at the PhD, but what made you go into your master's program for counseling or major family therapy. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I enough, my, my undergrad was in marketing. So, I went into corporate America right out of college, realized fairly quickly that that was absolutely not the path for me. And so, I had to figure out another path and, you know, started to do some, you know, searching, some researching, some soul searching, um, just to see what it is that I really wanted to do and looked at my current role and the things that I enjoyed the most about what I was doing had nothing to do with my actual role. It was connecting with people. It was building relationships. It was helping others through the 
transition and the adjustment of being where we were. Um, and so uh, like it was a lot of like mentorship and counseling, but as a friend and those types of things. And so even when I told my um, colleagues there, my colleagues and friends there that I was going to pursue the master's, they were like, yep, that makes sense. So yeah, it's just like, you know, really figuring out what it is that I wanted to do. I was really interested in learning about relationships. Um, I didn't as much care about like pathology and like, you know, how the brain works as much as how relationships work. So major family therapy just seemed like the, like the choice. It just like, Oh yeah, of course this. Um, and it just so happened. Like this was really one of those just like kismet moments of the only marriage and family therapy program in my state was in my hometown. Wow. And so I was like, uh, yeah, (laughs) I'm going to go there. And so I did. I left my big old corporate job that I hated with no plan, no job lined up um, and applied to the program and got in for that um, next semester. So that's that's it. And so what was your experience in the program like? I loved it. It was absolutely amazing. Um, my professors were great, great during my time there. Um, my classmates, friends that I that I made while I was in the program. It was just one of those experiences where I, you know I was in school, but I was also at home. So I didn't like I wasn't like away from home and having to adjust to all those things. I would go to school and go hang out with my sister or you know my friends, whoever uh, after classes. Um, and, you know, work during the day because I also worked full time during my master's. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was kind of nice because I just had my apartment. I went to work. I went to school and hung out when I could. And it was it was really nice. It was stressful because I was working full time. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it. The program is was and still is a really, really good program. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I'm I'm curious, and this is maybe more of a selfish question for me. What did you feel like? Um, what was your experience of the process of becoming a therapist like? Hmm. Hmm. Trying to figure out how, like how to answer this. It was like words that are coming to mind: unfolding, affirming. Um. In a lot of ways, it helped to rebuild some of the parts of myself that had struggled through, you know, family, family trauma and family issues. Um, yeah, like it, it, it broke down some stuff and helped me to understand some things differently than I had previously understood them. And also gave me some awareness and tools to to not only be a good therapist, but just a better person, which I think goes hand in hand Um with each other so yeah it was like deeply deeply transformative try not to like use the like cliche words but that's what that was weird shit (laughs) yeah no i hear that so when when during your master's did you go straight master's to phd Mm -hmm. okay when during your master's bachelor's and master's but i went straight through master's okay when during your master's did you know you wanted to do a phd after the first year um, yeah, after the first year and some of it was my professors telling me that I should, um, they, I guess they, you know, saw 
whatever they saw, uh, multiple professors suggested that I go on and because um, I don't know that I had necessarily had as much thought about it prior to that, but one of my professors um, who I later ended up working with, she was in her PhD program. So she actually went to UGA um, and graduated from UGA and she was doing her internship while I was doing the master's. And so kind of that was a connection there. Um, and then we had one black professor and she was an adjunct professor in the program. And she was probably the only person I had met to that point or yeah, like the only black therapist that I had met to that point that had a PhD. Like I had, of course I had professors in college that had PhDs, but like the only black professor in the program who had a marriage and family therapy PhD. And so I was like, Oh, this is a possibility as well. And then our director of the program also saying, you should think about this. And because they knew that I was doing work with people with disabilities and that I was like passionate about that. Um, I had created like a, a partnership between my job and the program to be able to provide therapy for people with disabilities. So like I essentially cre like created that partnership that they still have to, to, to this day. Um, and so I guess they you know saw that, that passion and knew that there were was more to do with that. So, yeah, after that, I was like, why not? Yeah. And so what were you, what were you like envisioning the PhD would do for you? Or what were you envisioning you'd do after the PhD? No, you just. Honestly, I don't even know at this point, because it has changed so much, like the, the level of awareness and knowledge that I have about the PhD now, because it's changed so much. I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Is it okay with me? Because. It's like, what was I thinking? Um, because some of it is when you are, you know, you grow up poor, you grow up in certain neighborhoods, you grow up in certain you know areas and ex with experiences, they tell you education is your ticket out. That's how you're going to, you know, get out of poverty. That's how you're going to get out the hood. That's how you're going to get out of these places. And I bought into that. I absolutely bought into that of, okay, I ain't got, I'm not athletic. I can't sing. I can't dance. I got academics, so I'm going to do it. That's going to be my ticket out. Um, and so it's like, you know, I need to go to, I need to get my PhD. I don't know what this actually means. I knew professors because I've been in college. That is the extent. I didn't really understand, grasp, oh, a PhD is a research degree. People said it, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't like, I didn't really know what they were saying. I heard the words, but I didn't have context for them. Um, and so... Honestly, I don't know what I thought it was going to do for me, but it wasn't. It didn't do what I. Mm. <laughs> right. right. Okay. So you uh, you applied? Did you apply only to UGA? I applied only to UGA. I remember you saying that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was also of the mind, like if I'm going to do this, because I knew I didn't know it was going to be hard. That was one thing when people said that. Like I took that and I knew it was going to be hard, and so I said, if I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it at the place where I want to be so that I can be near my family. And because um, also my sister, I found out my sister was pregnant during the um, the process of. No, I found out she was pregnant before I even applied, I think. So I know I wanted to be close by. I had godchildren that um, didn't know me that well because I was away you know, in other places when they were, you know, when they were getting older and I didn't want that for my niece at the time. So I knew that 
if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it at a place that I want to be where I can get back to my family. Um, I liked that program. Um, I had, you know, looked at the professors and stuff. And because I had like six, seven different schools that I had looked at, but none of them spoke to me like UGA did. So I'm not going to apply to places I know I don't want to be at. I'm just not doing that. And I would be okay with not getting in at all and not pursuing this if that was like if that was my my path. So it's either this or go straight into the workforce. Yeah. So you got into UGA mm -hmm. and then you moved to Athens. Mm -hmm. We all met. We started classes. What was that 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 transition like, that process? Mm-hmm. It was interesting. It was interesting. So I, and I don't even know how much of this you know, but I went early because I needed, like I went to school, I started the, that summer before our actual program started. So I came and I took some classes just so I could get the refund to be able to help with my bills because I wasn't, like I didn't have enough money to, to make the transition. So I came early for the sole purpose of getting a refund check to be able to, yeah, to, to function financially. Because um, I also had to finish my master's program. Because at that time, we graduated from, we graduated in July, not in May, in my master's program. So there was that overlap in the summer. Um, but because of some ways of financial aid, my the way that my aide would work in my master's program, the cutoff and the timing didn't work out for me to be able to get the financial aid to to take me through the summer. So I had to start UGA early. I don't know if that made sense, but yeah. Um, so I went there. I got connected with um, Trana um, over the summer. So got to hang out with some people during the summer. Made some connections. Met some other people. Met Megan. Some other people in the department. Um, and yeah, the summer was cool. Like it was. It was, it was cool. It was fine. Um, I had everything I needed done for my master's program. Um, and so it was just waiting for graduation and then waiting to start our program officially in the fall. Um, so that summer, smooth sailing. That semester came, met all y'all, and like, you know, that was cool. Large cohorts, like, okay, this is, this is different, you know, whatever, whatever. Um... But then, yeah, like I said, I don't know how much you know about this, but the first semester was extremely rough for me financially. And so I had the financial strain on me to, and I don't even remember what it was like academically, um, like for the most part, because that was my biggest stressor. Um, but I do remember being in our class, in one of our classes, and getting so pissed off because we were talking about we were talking about something and the professor white male professor um was talking about how certain you know behaviors are the reason why um black men are in prison and i don't do you remember this at all this was first semester and yeah the conversation essentially uh, the connection that was being made was because of corporal punishment that's why black men are in prison because they're violent. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah, and it was it was a whole thing. And, you know, got into 
discussions in class. Um, it was a few of us. Few of us. It was all of us in our cohort in the class. And one of our one of our classmates, you know, she's with me. She understood the the um, historical context and all these different things. And but it was like, well, violence begins violence. It's like y'all are missing a lot of nuance here, like a whole lot of stuff. But because I couldn't back it up with like data in that very moment what I was saying was being dismissed. And I was like, oh, this is what we're doing. This is what research does. Oh, okay. And so from then on, I'm like, fuck these numbers. <laughs> this is bullshit. They have no context. They have, like, the, the samples are skewed. Like, y'all are sampling men in prison, but these same behaviors, these same experiences happen to men in college, but y'all aren't looking at that. So I'm just like, yeah, so we can problematize one particular thing, but the conclusions that were being drawn were just ridiculous. So... That completely shifted like my um, my perspective of research and how I felt about research. Um, but so that was that part of like having in class experiences. But then outside of class, I was literally losing everything, everything that I had worked for over the past you know couple of years, rebuilding myself after um, leaving my corporate job. I lost my car. I had to move out of my apartment. Um, I, I wasn't able to pay any of my bills. Um, it just, I was not financially prepared for this transition to a PhD program. And people like, even though our tuition was paid, our expenses were not. And I had the lowest paying assistantship in the department. And so, yeah, like I, I struggled significantly that first semester, just trying to pay my bills. So I had to move out of my apartment, um, in like November of that semester November December of that semester um, maybe even October I don't know I can't, I can't remember the timeline um, and had to sell a bunch of stuff like and move into a, a four-bedroom apartment with like three other undergrads or some shit it was not fun I don't think I knew any of that uh-huh uh-huh yeah and like you know my couple um, like you know, like few few professors knew what was going on and they did what they could to help. So I do appreciate that. Like they were, they actually rallied and, and did what they could to help, like come up with a plan. They set me up with one of the department, one of the professors in the financial department to come up with a, a plan of action to at least get me stabilized. Um, and then, yeah, that was, that was my first semester. First semester. Jeez. Yeah. Fun. Wow. Okay, well, what happened next? Yeah, um, and then, so after that, I, you know, got to, we were on uh, winter break, um, ended the semester, you know, did did fine, got through the classes, all that good stuff, um, and then I had a moment over the break where, because I, I had, I was going to leave, I was gone, I was like, I lost all my stuff, I hate this, these people, racist, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm out. I had applied to like 40 jobs, like 40 different, like that might be an exaggeration, but it was at least 20 mental health jobs. I had applied to a bunch of jobs. I was out. I was gone. Um, I had, you know, connected with some of my friends from my master's program, trying to get to connect to the jobs that they were in. Um, but I had a moment while I was home and I stopped and I asked myself, I was like, okay, it's gone. It's, all, it's gone. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't change that. Now, what do you want? What do you want to do? Do you want this PhD or do you not want this PhD? And it's like, you know what? All right, that's that's behind me. I want this PhD. I've started this and I want to see it through, but I'm going to do it my way. 
And that was that was literally, I remember that very vividly. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to continue to do it my way. Fuck what these people talking about. I'm not listening to your biased ass research that you swear up and down is unbiased bullshit. No, it's not. Um, yeah, I'm going to do this my way. And that's, that is literally what I did. Yeah. So the next few years were great. <laughs> <laughs> So, because y'all were y'all were publishing y'all asses off, y'all were doing all this research for hours and hours and hours. So I was like, no, no, I'm not doing that. Because first of all, y'all are paying me shit. I'm over here eating ramen noodles and soup and shit on a regular basis, and you think you're gonna get all of my time and energy? I'm not doing that. I'm going home this weekend. Oh, I got something big, dude. I'll get it done. It'll get done. But I'm going home this weekend. I'm going to see my niece. I'm going to see my sister. I'm going to whatever event this is, and y'all can work on that. So. I I do seem to remember. I remember you seemed uh, stressed your first year, mm-hmm. and I rem- I I felt like I viewed that from afar because I don't think we had hung out maybe that much that first year. Mm-hmm. And you. then it seemed like the further you got in the program, like the happier you got. <laughs> Which I think for some other people it was the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yes, it literally yes. Yeah. Yep. Because I, I I just wasn't, I had gotten to the point, I was like, if this doesn't happen, like, if I leave this program, I'm going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I've been, I've been broke. I've been, like, I've already lost everything and I'm still here. So if this doesn't work out, I need to leave this program. I'll go find a job. It won't be hard. It will not be hard for me to find a place to make money and sustain myself if this PhD doesn't work out. I don't want to do research. I don't even necessarily want to teach. And so I'm at this point, I'm doing this to give myself a some kind of like leg up credential wise. But if this doesn't work out, it is not the end of the world for me. Right. Right. And just just for uh, context for any listeners that don't know, as uh, marriage and family therapists, the master's degree is the terminal degree. Mm-hmm. So. We didn't have to get a PhD to practice. Maybe it helped, like, you know, boosted what you could make by 15% or something. But um, it's not like psych where you got to go for the full PhD to practice. Exactly. So, and as an aside, do you need to hop off at the top of the hour? Kind of soon. Flexible. Might get hungry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay. I'm just trying to time manage. Um Okay, very cool. So the so first year was a struggle. Um, I, I am sorry to hear all of that. I did not know all of that coming in. Um, but things got better going through. You you had a um, so how did you? I, I guess what I'm trying to get is how does your view of your career and what you wanted to do after the program, whether or not you finished, how did that evolve through your your journey in the PhD program? Yeah, it, it became more of a, like an experience and just a, like a learning process. Um, I stopped looking at the PhD as like my ticket out or, excuse me, as like a, even a next step to like this like ideal like role in my career. Like that, like I didn't even have that. I started looking at it as, I'm going to get all of the experiences that I can um, figure out, like, you know, like learn, understand deep, more deeply about this world and like people, relationships. Like, so the extent of 
research, if you will, was not to become a tenure track research professor. It was to have a deeper understanding of this world and people and how we work and in relationships and all those things. Um, and my my particular like research focus was from a critical lens. So really being able to look at this world um, from a critical lens. So like that is what I started to focus on. And if you remember, like part of my journey was like going to like getting to do presentations in Australia doing take I did a summer um, research thing in South Africa. And these were all things I was like, I want to do this. And so I'm going to figure out how to make it work. And that's what I did. That was how I got to do some of my first overseas traveling. That was how I did my first overseas traveling. And yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah. so, so let's say you're, you're, you're starting your dissertation. It was your fifth year, I think. Did you start dissertating? Started it in my fourth year. Oh, wow. That was I started it late. So you started in your fourth year. And then so while you're dissertating, what's kind of your view on job applications? Like the kind of like what's around the corner? Mm -hmm. So I knew I didn't want to be. So, OK, so I'm back up for a second. I have always said I didn't want to be a teacher like my entire life. I was like, I don't ever want to be a teacher. And so the fact that I even went into teaching was kind of like. What you do, yeah? <laughs> but I, I, I did enjoy it. But uh, I, I didn't apply to any R1 positions. I, everything that I applied to, for the most part, was like teaching universities. Because um, I didn't want to, I did not, I, I was not interested in the publisher parish lifestyle. Like, I'm not here for it. I honestly don't like writing. Um, I can't stand it. Um, and so I knew that if I was going to go into academia, which I was, it needed to be a teaching university and so that's all I applied to and ended up at my master's on the water and that's awesome and so how is that transition into that role after uh, getting a PhD it was it was really good um for a bunch of different reasons so like part of my work now is like as a coach part of my work is focusing on like the, the whole life not just the career and how the career fits into that and, you know, making all these things work together in harmony. And so that transition was really good because, again, I'm, I'm back at home with my family. I now have a niece and a nephew who adore me and I adore them. And, you know, other family members or other um, friends had, you know, finished their, their degrees and had, some had come back home. So it was uh, an opportunity to be able to, like, just be with my people again. And then working at a program that I loved and like really believed in with people that I really enjoyed working with. Um, so a lot of the professors and uh, supervising people that were there when I was in the program were still there. And so I already had relationships with them. They love me. I love them. So it was it was a very unique kind of journey. Uh, but again, I have been very intentional about doing things that feel good to me along the journey and building relationships that feel good. And that absolutely impacted how I was able to move post degree. It wasn't, you know, these, these difficult transitions. Um, Cause I kind of did what I wanted. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I just didn't have a lot of fear about 
Um, because I'm fear and angst about making these types of decisions. Well, what if if you do this, you'll get pigeonholed into this and you'll, I don't want that shit anyway. Somebody else told me that's what I'm supposed to want. And so it's, it's very easy for me to make those kind of decisions and say, this is what I want. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go that way. So it was, it was a beautiful transition to answer the question. <laughs> that's awesome. And so you were there for, was it a year, two years? Two years. I was there for two years. Um, now it was, it was a rocky two years because of students. <laughs> I'm just going to be real about it. I had some amazing students. I had some amazing, amazing, amazing students. And I had some issues with students that weren't amazing at all. Like, there were... I, I still, to this day, I'm like, y'all are grown-ass people. And the amount of pushback for simple shit that I would get was ridiculous. And, you know, there were other pieces of this. I was the first... First black grad school professor at the at the college, um, but I was the only black professor, only full time black professor at the entire college when I started. And so that like there was that dynamic, like they hadn't had a black full time black professor in thirty three years. Really, thirty three years. Was that a, a, a HBCU? No. No, I okay. I thought it was for some reason. Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, this this master's program. Um, they had their first black professor in like the eighties, who happened to be happened to be my cousin, like down the line. Because you know, small small um, cities, but right. Um, yeah, I was the first full time professor because I had adjuncts, of course, but in thirty three years. Wow. Yeah. So that was another little yeah. piece that you know I had to navigate. Um, students weren't used to having a black professor, and I remember when I was in the program, the black professor that they had, like they gave her hell. Like my classmates gave her hell because it was the she's so she's so aggressive, she's so intimidating, she's so scared. I'm like what the fuck are y'all seeing? Right. And so I got some of that same stuff. I had one student write me uh, this whole letter about how I was terrorizing her and making her home feel unsafe at the clinic and I'm like first of all I'm your clinical director and you're breaking rules so I'm going to bring that to your attention and but she had this whole just this whole tirade about like how I was terrorizing her and all this stuff so I had a lot of issues with students but I had some amazing students at the same time in those two years absolutely amazing students so I don't like I don't regret any of that I'm glad I did it but I'm also glad I'm not doing it anymore yeah yeah so what, when did you know in that process that you wanted to jump to the next thing professionally? Honestly, once I met my wife and knew that <laughs> I wasn't going to be staying here, um, staying, or staying there, I should say, um, quite frankly, there is a possibility that if I'd never met my wife, my now wife, that I could have still been teaching there. Um, cause I didn't, I didn't hate it. Yeah. I didn't hate it. I actually, I enjoyed it for the most part. I just, you know, it came with other shit, which most positions do. Um, but I very possibly could have still been there. But once I had that, like, Oh, I can get out of here. Like, Oh, what else can I do? What else do I want to do? I'd already started my private practice. So I knew that I could make money. It's like I did that, um, while I was also, um, teaching because professors at teaching universities don't make a whole lot of money, which is part of that like myth of, you know, 
and being any kind of ticket out. But so I was doing that and um, had my private practice. So I knew that I could make money as a private practice owner. And I knew that I could make a, like probably two to three times as much as I was making as a professor. So it's like, I'm out of here. Yeah. So, and then after you met it, your wife's name is Kim, right? Mm-hmm. After you met Kim, excuse me. Um, you moved to Texas. Wait, when did that happen? June, 2020 at the end of my second year of teaching. Um, so I was planning, I had already planned to leave. I was planning to leave in August of 2020 after the end of our, cause our, our, um, school, um, so their school, uh, semester ends in July Our school program ends in July. And so, um, I was going to leave in August, but the pandemic hit in March. And so everything shut down, everything went online. And at that point I was like, why, why wait till August if I'm working remotely anyway? And so I went ahead and moved in June and taught, um, I did adjunct through the summer. Yeah. I adjunct through the summer, um, for like supervision and other stuff. Uh, like one, maybe one of the class, I think I might've been all in class. Um, and then went back for their graduation and then I was done at the end of July. Yeah. And so you, you basically had to restart your practice too, right? Moving nope. states. Nope. Oh, cause were you doing a remote? Virtual. That's the other part of okay. it. I didn't okay. have to change anything. So when I had already started doing a little bit of telehealth, like I had maybe one client that I was doing, one, two clients I was doing telehealth with already in my private practice. And so I had to shift everybody to online, but you know, and like maybe only, you know, a couple didn't come because they didn't want to do online, but you know, now everybody got to do it. But then, so yeah, I was able to continue my practice. I didn't have any interruptions and I like my practice is still active in South Carolina. It's primarily active in South Carolina. I have my Texas license, but the majority of my client load is still in South Carolina. So that that was actually a benefit more than anything. Very cool. And so when did you uh, start the beyond achieving, start getting into life coaching, that kind of thing? So that actually happened before I left as well. So that actually started okay. in South Carolina too. Um, but it started in like April. So the pandemic had just hit. It had just started. And I had done a like a group coaching program to get started with it. So I have a friend of mine who was also a coach um, who introduced the, introduced the idea and um, was kind of helping me get, get started. So I started that like end of March and like launched my first um, program in April of 2020. And so I had already had my practice for a year at that point and then introduced coaching a year later. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been, yeah, just as did. So what attracted you to, to coaching, uh, as opposed to just continue to do traditional psychotherapy, mm-hmm. which I know you still do as well. Mm-hmm. So what I was noticing even in therapy, a lot of the clients that I was seeing in therapy, they were coming, they were, it was a lot of black women in my private therapy practice because I was also still doing a, a fellowship at a um, community clinic. But on the private practice side, a lot of the clients were black women who were quote unquote high achieving black women in these you know great jobs, experiencing a lot of stress and burnout. 
um, but feeling, you know, overwhelmed, like they can't, you, you know, take breaks, they can't take any time off, they can't do any of the things that would, is clear that they need. Um, and so I started to look at that more uh, closely and recognize that this is a specific need that not that not that these clients don't need therapy, but there is a specific way of thinking and a specific um, like a process that's happening that I wanted to be able to focus on. Like like I wanted to specifically be able to focus on. So that's how I was when I was I was like seeing the need through my therapy practice. Um, but I like therapy wasn't it wasn't able to address all of the things that were happening. So yeah, I started thinking about like how can I help these women? What can I offer? What can I do? And coaching was the natural answer to that. And so I started with self-care coaching and really helping black women specifically develop like self-care regimens and practices strategies systems to kind of shift how they're using their time um addressing different like mindset barriers and things that like ways are they thinking about because like we you know you've heard this before of how we're always told we have to work twice as hard to get half as much and that is so deeply ingrained in the like just in the the, the, the fabric of our bodies um and our minds that it leads to some very harmful practices in like decision making and fear based types of uh, decision making within like and among black women. So yeah, I just wanted to address that specific issue. Uh, perfectionism is another big part of that. Um, lack of boundaries is another big part of that. And so yeah, I wanted to be able to address that specific thing without the honestly like the limits of therapy. Like there's some things that I just I couldn't I couldn't do as a therapist that I can do as a coach. And I am still very clear and specific. Like if I see clients need therapy, a lot of my clients work with the therapist as well to address, you know, those, those mental health issues. Um, but yeah, there was a specific need to focus on these things that therapy wasn't, wasn't addressing. Absolutely. And so I, so I've followed your content for, I don't know, year, two years, maybe. And it seems like self-care is one of these big themes that comes up and you focus on. And I, I remember when we were grad students, you had some very intentional, like self-care practices and you would, you would talk about them. And I, it, uh, I, I don't think I'd ever thought to think about self-care like intentionally as a mm -hmm. thing. Um, and so what, what has self-care meant to you, not just like recently with the coaching, but just kind of like across your life? What is, what, what does self-care stand for? Mm -hmm. And thank you for, thank you for bringing that, that back to my awareness. Cause I, I know that I've been doing this work like with myself for a long time and I'm very, very, uh, it is, it's very important to me that I practice what I preach and that I'm not just saying things cause they sound good or regurgitating what somebody else has said on the internet. So thank you for bringing that back because I really have been practicing this and putting like developing these processes for a long time. And I can't even tell you how the concept of self-care got introduced to me because I don't even know if, if it was, you know, that was, it wasn't a thing then. Like self-care wasn't this big term or concept then. And so what it has meant to me is just simply caring, like taking care of myself. 
and not in these, you know, social media ways or just like, you know, buzzword ways of, yes, I'm making sure that I'm, you know, getting my bow bath and doing my pampering, which are all important. Like those things are absolutely important, but it's taking care of myself and treating myself like I actually matter. Like I am a human being who has needs, who is not supposed to work like a machine, like a slave, like I like like I have like I don't have limits. And so it has very much meant paying attention to my body and not letting the external world and quite frankly capitalism tell me that I have to kill myself for somebody else's benefit. Because that's a lot of times that's what it is. Yeah. I, I, it may sound naive, but, but when you, when grad school, when I would hear you talk about it and I would see you do things and set limits to protect yourself, I, uh, I don't know. I, I saw that as so kind of like foreign or like unneeded or, and I, I had a big ass ego then. Um, not that I don't now, but, uh, I think I was also just so un, um, aware of the detriment of like over time just running yourself at a hundred percent or whatever percent um i was doing Mm -hmm. uh unaware of what the toll that would take psychologically and Mm -hmm. you know physically Mm -hmm. which i ran into a couple years later Mm -hmm. um yeah and i'll be real with you i would look at you i'll be like is he okay yeah i don't i i uh probably wasn't <laughs> oh, no, it, it was pretty clear yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you, you were functioning you were doing it but it, it was absolutely clear like and it wasn't just you like it, that was the expectation yeah, yeah it, was, it felt like the culture mm-hmm. um yeah and i think i mean i enjoyed it i i have my own demons i was running from by like you know uh burning a candle at both ends um but i think there was definitely a cultural element to it Mm-hmm. and not cultural a culture element and um and yeah i i uh right after we had leroy my son mm-hmm. i could feel this like almost like a, a screen or something that i've been seeing life through kind of lifted up and i was like oh fuck working 60 hours a week and you know all this the recognition for research like what does this actually like what value does this have yep I feel like it's, you know, it's like fool's gold or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, you saw it so much far in advance. Um, and uh, it, it was so fun watching you from afar. Um, anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. But self-care. So you've been doing uh, retreats now. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Was that the first retreat you just had? No, this was the second one. I did one okay. last September as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I honestly, I am, I am building this whole just vision and and structure and foundation of creating space for black women and all black women, all kinds of black women, because I will say there's also been this, um, this perception that this idea of like luxury and soft life, you know, these buzz, again, these buzzwords that are coming out, you only see it in like a specific kind of black woman. And we don't talk about that a lot, but it it very much is. And my whole point has always been self-care. It ain't got to cost money. 
It's not something you do once. It's not for people who only have the privilege of it. No, we all, as human beings, have a fundamental right to actually give a fuck about ourselves and do something about it. And so, yeah, I'm really trying to create this entire, um, like, I guess, movement of like all all black women knowing that we can do like we can reserve something for ourselves. And the number of people and, and I do recognize, let me just put this disclaimer out there. Somebody going to have something to say about it. That this isn't just black women. Like, of course, like other people are overworked, other people stress out. Um, and black women are often the most marginalized and the most um, exploited among us. And so that's why that's where my focus is. And the number of times I've heard people say, like, I've even never had a vacation or I haven't had a vacation in 10 years. I haven't taken any days off in X, Y and Z. Um, don't even know what it looks like. Don't even know what it, how it feels to sit down and take a break. Like it's, it's disheartening. And we look at our grandmothers, we look at our, um, grandparents and just how run down they are. Just how, just how beat down they've been by life. And I'm like, I'm not doing this shit. I'm not doing it. Like that does not have to be our futures. And so that is what I'm working towards a future where we can actually, get to our, you know, older years, our later years, and just not be so beat down by life. Because life, life, life is going to do plenty of that on its own, but we absolutely, sometimes, like, we, we just accept it, and we don't have to. We yeah. just don't have to. Yeah, it almost feels like it's your coaching is almost like a process of like socializing these professionals into a new mindset mm -hmm. versus, you know, therapy is maybe more like a clinical, mm -hmm. um, you have like, you know, something, uh, what you call it, a symptom and we're, we're going to like treat a symptom or try to find, you know, mm -hmm. something for it. Mm -hmm. And this seems more like all encompassing. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah, I, I, it's not it can't just be one thing like we're, we're talking about people so like their entire life like people think that it's just work like if I can get work together then da, 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 da. no like we got to look at all the pieces like that's that's where my system thinking comes in yeah. <laughs> these things all work together and so if we're just focusing on one then we're, we're missing we're missing other parts and they're like the system gonna just recalibrate and the other pieces are gonna override so no we gotta we gotta focus on all these things. We gotta we gotta work on the core of who you are, so that that starts to um, like spill out into other areas of your life. So yeah, that's why it is very much looking at the full picture um, and reshifting how we just engage with ourselves and this world around us. That's awesome. And so you've got in terms of specific ways of working with you, you've got the retreats. And then like a more, an extended like one-on-one -on -one program. Mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So my my main way of working is through my one-on-one -on -one coaching. So um, I have two different ways that people can work with me. Um, it's either on like a monthly retainer. It used to be like a 12-week program, but I noticed that people were extending their time, wanting to continue working. So I make it, it's a 12-week, um, it's a monthly retainer that has a minimum of three months. So 
because um, that's the other thing. I don't I don't do ad hoc sessions. I don't do one on ones or like one off sessions anymore because I'm trying to create meaningful, sustainable change over time. And yeah, that's just a personal choice that I've made. Um, so people can work with me for a minimum of three months or they can do my six month experience, which is a specific like we lay out a, a specific plan um, and work through that plan, the individualized, personalized plan over the six months. It includes me actually coming to the location and doing some in-person things as well. Um, and that's I would say now more people are choosing to do that than the monthly retainer um, just because it, it is so focused and so um yeah, it's intentional about in the six months, we're going to work on this, 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 and this. We're going to transform these areas of your life, and here's how we're going to do it. Very cool. And so before we transition to the last part of our conversation, how can people learn more um, or follow you? Mm-hmm. Where would you direct people to? So primarily, I would direct you to my Instagram um, to engage with me more. Um, it's Dr. Shaquinta. Dr. Period Shaquinta on Instagram. Um, I do, you know, some lives and things like that. I do what one of the things I do is called Monday Morning Mindset, where I go live and we just kind of, you know, prepare for our week, prepare for our weeks mentally, um, get intentional about our weeks, take back some agency over our time and our days. Um, you know, set us up for a positive experience because, uh, you know, so much of our lives is just going with the flow. But nah, I get to I get to determine how I want to experience my day. I'm not just gonna roll with the punches. Uh, sometimes you have to, but if you're already creating that bank of joy and fun and care and all those things, when those moments come, you're a lot more prepared for them. So that's one thing. Yeah. Um, I post a lot. Um, I have a newsletter that you can sign up on um, as well on my Instagram. Um, so I, I do a monthly newsletter and sometimes, you know, throughout the month as well, sharing other tips and tricks, details, stories, those kinds of things. Um, my website is www.beyondachieving.com, which has more information about my services. Um, yeah. So Instagram, Dr. Period Shaquinta, www.beyondachieving.com. Awesome. And so this is, this is a great transition. I, and this is a question that I had for me. Um, but I'm sure the listeners will be interested to hear your Instagram is like picture perfect. Like I look at these pictures and everything and I'm like, I, I could not take these pictures of myself. Um, do you have someone helping you either on the photo side or the, the posting side or anything like that? Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about, about the insides of it? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't take most of these pictures of myself. Some of them I do. So I kind of, I do a combination of just like everyday photos, like whenever I'm out doing something or in house doing something. So some of them are, you know, just, you know, either I take them or my wife takes them. But I do a photo shoot every three to six months just to have fresh photos to post. Um, Because quite frankly, I don't, I don't like social media like that. I don't, I don't like doing the social media marketing. Um, so I like to have my photos ready to go so I don't have to worry about, oh, am I, do I have on the right outfit today? Do I, you know, is my hair, whatever, whatever. I don't want to have to worry about that all the time. So I, I have my photos um, and I like to keep them fresh on my website and stuff too. Uh, so yeah, I do a photo shoot with a photographer here in Houston. Their name is Jess um, of We The Romantics. So all of my photos, uh, pretty much, yeah, pretty much 
all the photos you see, like the professional looking photos are from Jess at We The Romantics. They are amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. And then of the rest posting, like I have, I have a designer on retainer. And so anytime I need something designed, they design it for me. So they update my website, um, any graphics, uh, they, you know, do that kind of stuff for me. Um, yeah. So no, I do. I, I don't have that. eye. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, let, I, so I'm trying to imagine our audience is, you know, mostly another old man cough, mostly, um, folks in grad school, they're looking ahead to their career, you know, um, just based on the research I've looked at 50 to 70% were probably thinking they're going into academia mm-hmm. a couple years in that's, that's dropped probably in half. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking at their academic options, their industry options, you know, W2 job at a business. Um, and I think a, some percentage of them are definitely thinking about trying to be an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you know, putting out a shingle, selling some kind of service, mm-hmm. maybe a product, mm-hmm. probably a fair amount of some kind of a service associated with their training that they did in academia. So mm-hmm. what, what advice, what would you tell people who are thinking about stepping a toe in the water, trying to get something out there. What what should people be thinking about in terms of building a business off of their expertise? Mm-hmm. Figure out what it is you want to do and why and go for it. Like don't let any any like any thing that's just like I can't do this or this doesn't make sense or whatever the case. Like just put it out there. If you have something that you think will help people, then share it. Let people let people see what it is that you have to offer and decide whether they want it or not. You show the value in it, whatever it is. Help under help people understand why it is important, why they need to do whatever it is, and go do the thing. That is what anybody has done. All this shit is made up. All of it's made up. All of it's made up. All of it. Make some shit up. Put it out there and do your thing. Like most of the time, when things don't work out for people, it's because they they gave up. Now, yeah. the, the, there's a very small percentage of things that like nobody need that or this don't make no sense. But people pay for the weirdest shit. Like so, like just do it. And don't let your fears and your doubts and that those inner critics tell you that you can't do something. If it's something you want to do, if it's an idea you have, it's the way you want to help people, figure out how to put it in front of the people who need to see it and do it. That's it. All right. Well, that that answers it. I'm going to start that Foot Finder account. (laughs) Do it. <laughs> Look, I'm here for it. Do whatever. Do whatever you need. Because the reality is like so much of what we have decided we want is because somebody told us that that's the path that we should take. But then we get there and we're like, why isn't this working out? It's because it's somebody else's path that they either did take or didn't even take and they told you to do it. No. Learn to listen to yourself. Learn to figure out what it is that you want. And that takes like giving yourself actually space to listen. So many, like I understand, you know, some of us have things that come up when we sit in those quiet moments that feel uncomfortable and we don't like it. 
But if you can sit through that discomfort long enough to actually get to your voice, that is what makes all the difference to being able to make decisions with clarity, decisions that feel in alignment with who you are and what you want. And you don't leave, you aren't left feeling so much resentment and stress and strife and struggle because it's not you. Mm-hmm. But that takes courage. It's true. It's very true. So what, what would you say to grad student Shaquinta, if you could go back, you know, if she's worried about her career, worried about her future, would you give her wisdom? What would you do? Quite frankly, I'd tell her, keep going. Yeah. You, you were doing it. What, what you thinking, how you thinking, you are on the right track. Keep going. Like, I, I don't regret a single thing. I look back, there, there's not a single thing that I would want to, I mean, like something small maybe, but there's not anything that I would want to have done differently. I remember one day in class, we, we had some class and I was just fed the fuck up. I was tired. I was stressed out. I had some other stuff going on and I just walked out of one of our classes. I just walked out in the middle <laughs> And even that, like, professor called me afterwards, and I was like, I ain't got nothing for you. I have nothing for you. I, I'm not going to try to make up no shit, no explanation. I called somebody, I said, come get me. I can't stay here. And I just left class, and I went home. And I don't, I don't regret those types of things, those ways of listening to what I needed in any particular moment, because those ways that I showed love to myself, because I have to take myself through all of these experiences. I have to take myself through the next role and the next role and the next role. And ain't nobody else going to make sure I'm okay if I don't make sure I'm okay. So just remember that. Like we sacrifice so much of ourselves for whatever. And it doesn't, it, it rarely returns the dividends that we think it does. Yeah. So, so what would you say to grad students right now who are looking at their career options moving forward? They're weighing, like I said before, academia industry mm-hmm. maybe some some side hustle or, or a business mm-hmm. they want to start do you have any advice for them in terms of navigating the next year or two of their career if something doesn't feel right if something doesn't settle in your spirit you're like i don't want to do this but i but i have to no you don't no you don't and unless like now take care of yourself you know make sure that your basic needs are met you know, that, that hierarchy needs here, but don't do something just because you feel like you feel pressure from somebody to do it. You feel like that's what they expect of you or whatever the case, if there's something that you want to do that, that isn't in alignment with that, then figure out how to make that happen. Um, disappoint people. Nobody ever died from disappointment. They will get over it, but you might not. So, or, you know, you might, might take you a little longer because you got to deal with the everyday of whatever decision you're making. Let them be disappointed. So, yeah. So, you just don't do anything that doesn't feel like you like truly want to be there. Yeah. You go for the things that you do. I could have saved myself some bruises if I would have known that back then. <laughs> Should have talked to me. <laughs> Should have. Should have talked to you more. All right, Shaquinta. Um, there any anything else on your mind you want to share? Any closing thoughts or plugs you want to give? Mm, 
for the grad students, just relax. Just allow yourself to not take it all so seriously. I know it, like everything's feel, everything feels so like high stakes when you're in the weeds of it. it. Feels like so much pressure to crank, 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 do, do, do. Release yourself of some of that pressure. You're still going to get there. If you still want to get there, you're still going to get there. Because the reality is, and love you, Matt, but uh, I, I got the same places they did doing it the way that I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Hey, I think I graduated sooner, didn't I? Probably. <laughs> making more money, too. <laughs> I think I did, yes. Um, so, don't be afraid to walk your own path. Seriously, like, don't be afraid to walk your own path because I, I promise you it would be that much more worth it you can say, you know what, I did this, and I'm actually a whole person on the other side of it. Well said. Wise words. Well, Shaquinta, I am so glad that we met in grad school. I'm so glad we are friends. Yes. I'm so glad you came on here and talked. It was uh, it was great chatting with you. Me too, me too. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm sure we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, final plugs. All right. So on Instagram, mm-hmm. it's Dr. Shaquinta. Mm-hmm. And your website is www.beyondachieving.com. Mm-hmm. You've got coaching. You've got, do you have a retreat coming up? Another retreat schedule? Mm-hmm. So oh, I, what I didn't say about the retreat, the retreat is typically for my clients only. Oh, for sure. Um, okay. So they're not open retreat. So yeah, they're just for my clients. So, yeah. Okay. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming, Chiquinta. I'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Folks, thank you for listening to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I loved getting to catch up with Shaquinta for this episode today. She endured many trials to create a satisfying career that she has now, and it is someone that I really admire. I hope you got a lot of inspiration and insight out of today's episode. May it help you on your own journey through grad school and beyond. Be sure to follow Shaquinta on Instagram at Dr. Shaquinta and check out her website at beyondachieving.com. If you did end up enjoying today's episode, please like and subscribe, leave a comment, and write a review. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this podcast, consider sending them today's episode and let them know why they should check it out. And if you're listening to today's episode and not watching it, you can try out the video version of our podcast on our YouTube channel. Do you know someone who you think should be interviewed on the show? If you do, or you generally want to get in contact to say hello, you can shoot me an email at matt at gradschoolsucks.com. Again, that's M-A-T-T at gradschoolsucks.com. Lastly, if you've been loving the soundtrack that plays at the beginning and end of our podcast episodes, well, that makes two of us. The musician who crafted this tune is a highly streamed lo-fi artist named Ocha. He has several albums of instrumental lo-fi and electronic music that's perfect for study sessions. You can find him on Spotify under the name Ocha, that's O-C-H-A. Go check him out next time you need some music in the background. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. 
See you then, grad students. So, Shaquinta, what is your superpower? <sighs> My superpower. Hmm. So the, the funny thing is, I, I've actually thought about this before, and the answer keeps changing. <laughs> so I think my superpower is um, the ability to, to see through the fog, to see through the bullshit, to see through whatever is presented and make sense of like what is beyond that. Um, so a little bit of... I don't know. Love it. I don't know. Well, Love it. Vision. Look <laughs> at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be? Ooh. Mm. Okay. <laughs> My old answer to this used to be a white tiger. A white beagle tiger, hands down. Just because they were beautiful and really powerful. And yes. But honestly, like really, I'd like to be a dog. In a bougie household. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hear that. Bird, you know, getting all the good food. Good life. Uh, the snuggles, good life. Days in the sun. Mm -hmm. I want to be a well taken care of little puppy, little dog. Love it. All right, last uh, softball. Uh, if you could retire anywhere in the world, where would you want to retire? Ooh. Mm. Mm, that's hard. Probably Mexico. Mexico. Why yeah. Mexico? It's the place that I've, one, been the most and have enjoyed the most. And feel like there's a lot of just food, sun, beaches, yeah. the vibes, like mm. top notch. Very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. All right. 